0: Larry boy, we'll show these fascists what a couple of hillbillies can do.
1: Hello, you're listening to KEPW LPFM 97.3, Eugene Homegrown Radio. I am Friend Catherine.
2: I'm Friend Cimarron
1: And thank you for listening. This is Friendly Anarchism. Well, I'm going to tell you
0: fascists, you may be surprised. People in this world are getting organized. You're bound to lose. You fascists, bound to lose. All you fascists bound to lose. Yes All you fascists bound to You bound
2: to lose You fascists bound to, fascist to Hello And welcome back to KEPW and Friendly Anarchism. Um, today we are going to be, uh, speaking with a, um, with a guest, Sharon Smith, um, who has written an article in the Friends Journal, um, and, uh, about an incredible story, um, uh, that deals with Quakers and racism and what's happening today. Um, so, uh, we're going to dive into that, um, Hi, Sharon.
3: Hi, how are you?
2: Doing wonderful. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Um, uh, so, you are not in Oregon, um, uh, but we're a part of a, the Massachusetts, I'm um, meeting in Massachusetts in Cape Cod, is that right? I'm not on in Massachusetts
3: or Cape Cod, I'm right now in Western North Carolina in Asheville.
2: Wonderful. Wonderful. Um, well thank you so much for talking to us all the way from Asheville um, uh, so um, you wrote this article in friends journal um, and can I ask um, uh, what was the what was the process for you um, there's a lot of things sort of happened in that article and I, I'm just I'm I'm overflowing with questions. Don't <laughs> um, um. well, ask
3: me anything. I will answer. <laughs> you know what I can. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Who? Okay. Well, um, let me pull up my Facebook page and see what that says about me. That's <laughs> how <laughs> we maybe know ourselves um, these days. <laughs> it says I'm complex, deep, passionate, inquisitive. Intuitive, creative, expressive, and so much more. So much more would be that I'm a mother, a grandmother, a um, mostly retired middle school drama teacher. Oh. <laughs> um, and I'm black, Indian, and Quaker. And that the, the reason I'm black, Indian, and Quaker is that my mother. Is a New England Quaker, and in the early fifties, she decided to get even with her parents by running off and marrying a colored man. <laughs> 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 My father is Mohawk and the Pony. Mohawk, you've heard of the Pony, probably not so much.
1: That's true. <laughs>
3: <clears throat>
2: mhm. Yes. Any other questions?
1: Um. well i it sounds like so you 're a drama teacher. I did drama that's wonderful it 's a wonderful field. I got a lot out of it and mm-hmm. do you think that it's been that that sort of that your background as a teacher has played into your experiences um, just as just as a person you know how how is that you know if we get some get some background on you, maybe we can see just sort of how you relating to this meeting and what those dynamics are, you know?
3: Okay. All right. Well, um, two things I think impact, um, you know, the experience that I'm having and the way people are interacting with me. (laughs) Um, The first being that um, I was raised as a Quaker by my white middle-class New England Quaker mother. Um. And, but I'm a person of color I mean, and that's obvious and clear You know, I mm-hmm. never chose to pass the light, um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I couldn't if I wanted to
0: mm.
3: Mm. And I learned um, And and um, being born an artist And somewhat mystical Because, you know, the Quaker movement Is, is kind of mystical mm. In a way yeah. <laughs> <Definitely> a mystic <laughs> uh, faith <laughs> right. uh, um, you know, artists um, have a thing about expression and creativity and examining reality mm-hmm. and um, ex- trying to express their interpretation of everything. Um, so, um hmm. Uh, I think what what makes it, uh, why I feel called to challenge Quakers on their racism has to do with that article in Friends Journal.
0: Yeah.
3: Um, because I was raised a Quaker, and my mother taught me about um, continuing revelation and that of God um, in me, and uh, my... Uh, responsibility to cultivate that part of God that is in me and to to listen to what I'm called to do and act according to what I'm, you know, led by spirit to do. So, uh, you know, in a sense, I was taught to be a spirit-led activist. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And... Um, and then I encountered Quakers as, a, as an adult. Um, because my mother never did say why she kept me um, and my younger siblings from Quakers while we were growing up, even though she taught us that we were Quakers and about Quakerism. And her, she was our example of what Quakerism was. Mm. Um, <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. And. Then um, I went. um, I was living in Western Mass. I grew up. We grew up in New York because uh, in the the early fifties, an interracial couple could not live anywhere in the country. Um, Wow. And and no. uh,
1: (laughs) Yeah, living in living um, an interracial couple in the fifties—that's its whole own amazing story. Uh, What an Uh, what an incredible heritage to have to have that background. Right. So so when my parents were
3: married and they lived in Harlem when I was born because that was really the only place they could live together um as a couple. Um and nineteen I was born in nineteen fifty four. That was the year of Brown versus the Board of Education, which mm-hmm. um, you know, was the Supreme Court case to desegregate public schools. I was thirteen years old, um when um, loving versus the state of uh, Virginia to overturn anti-miscegenation laws throughout much of the country Mm -hmm. so you know I joked that I was born an outlaw (laughs) 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 so um And, but I find myself uh, being raised a Quaker when I encountered other Quakers who were mostly white, that there were automatic racial problems.
2: Yeah.
3: And it caused me to want to understand racism, so I studied, um, and I learned a lot of things the hard way, uh, because my mother, being white, didn't really, I mean... She wasn't thinking in terms of critical race theory when she married my father.
1: Sure. <laughs> i sure, sure, sure when you're in love, that's not, the, that's not the first thing that comes into your
3: mind. You know, she was just doing her thing, you know. Her feminist choice was to run off and marry a colored man, you know. <laughs> she really was not prepared for the reality that she lived as a result. And mm. not really capable
2: of preparing her mixed race children for reality as people of color. Sure, and that right—that's definitely comes up a lot um, in Oregon, where there are a lot of uh, also like adopted um, uh, people of color. And there's it's a it's a very common story that children who grow up in in white or partially white households really mm-hmm. that's a that's a, a real tension about how yeah. to deal with. It
1: was interesting. I was a nanny for a little black girl who has a white mother, um, by birth, and the the dynamics there that I witnessed between by being a nanny, um, you know, were were very. Uh, and this was in Southern Oregon. People not assuming that she was the mother, you know, things like that that were always distressing to both um, the child and the mother. And just sort of witnessing that, and the sort of the surprise on people's faces—it's like if you look, if you look, like she looked like her mom, you know, like she (laughs) did. She did look like her mom, but people just got stopped at the color of her skin, and it was uh, very—it was distressing to be around, and it was, um, it was, it was just an interesting situation. You know, she had the mom had to learn how to do Aya's hair from from other people. You know, and mm-hmm. it was like a lovely bonding thing for them. Um, mm-hmm. But it's yeah. So I mean, right. Uh, but this then is
3: the, you know the social dynamics get really complicated, um, and sometimes very destructive. Yeah. Uh, the fa- family, you know, is, is another you know another one of my standard lines is where there's a will, there's relatives. <laughs> <laughs> um, and. Um, You know, I could tell a number of stories about my mother's family and how they dealt with, you know, her marriage to a colored man in the 50s and what, how they dealt with my mother having mixed race children. um, And, you know, a whole host of um, situations and stories come up about that. and, you know, I take after my father, um, and, and he's black and Indian, and, you know, you wouldn't know that he was a native by looking at him, but, you know, he his, he was raised by his Mohawk grandmother, who spoke the language and, and sang to him in it, um, and his father, you know, was in the construction trades in New York, like a lot of Mohawk men. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why when my parents were married, they came to Harlem to live because my father had Mohawk relatives, oh. um, you know, nearby.
1: <laughs> Hopefully that made it a little bit of a softer landing to have um, Well, you know,
3: I, um, I asked my mother once, you know, how she dealt with, you know, pu- people in the public because she's clearly a white middle class you know, woman. <laughs> um, you know, her story, um, you know, she went to Mount Holyoke, graduated, her dad was chairman of the religion department at Mount Holyoke. So she was raised in a fairly um, isolated upper middle class kind of environment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, um, you know, but Quaker, and very idealistic, and naive. <laughs> 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 I mean, that goes without saying, right? Mm-hmm. So, <laughs>
1: <laughs> I. How do you think, do you think, how does the um, middle class piece fit in there? as opposed to sort of like a poor white situation versus sort of the middle class, does that have a different tone to the racism element or the naivete? I can't really
3: tell you because, you know, hanging out with Quakers, um, the the typical profile is white and middle class.
1: Right.
0: Mm
3: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so (laughs) that's pretty much what I know about. (laughs) I cannot really tell you what poor white folks are like.
1: Um, <laughs> you know I
3: can't.
1: We're, we're getting um, a little bit of we're getting a little bit of rustling from your phone I'm not sure okay. if there's something um, it's probably
3: me brushing up against
1: the headphones mm. I'll be still <laughs> <laughs> okay th- thank you that sounds better
2: Um, and so part of the reason why um, why we wanted to talk to you today is because um, you you um, You've written this story in Friends Journal, um, and I want to sort of get into that because the story deals a lot with, uh, with racism and Quakers, and so you talked about, um, sort of coming to Quakers as an adult, um, and, uh, so I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about the, the story and what, what happened in the, uh, East, uh, East Sandwich meeting, um, and, um... In the article we talked about you came to it in 2002, had you already been um, a, a member or tender of other meetings before then, um, and what had, what had drawn you to, um, uh, to East Sandwich?
3: Well, uh, there are two stories there. One is what, what drew me to Friends in the first place, and the second was what drew me to East Bendish, because yeah. I've been attending Quaker meetings since the early '80s, mm. uh, when I was going to school at UMass Amherst, and uh, my mother was born in Amherst, and it never occurred to me till I landed there as a student at UMass. Um, and then mary kingler who was the oldest member of mount toby friends meeting in the area you know invited me and my daughter who was five at the time to worship at mount toby friends meeting with her and she was still driving and she was still alive then and she came and picked us up and took us to worship um and that was my first visit to a quaker meeting um, you know, worshiping with other friends. Wow. And I was about twenty six at the time. Um yeah. And Mary Taylor brought us to worship and she said, um, this is she named my grandfather, this is John Paul Williams' granddaughter and great granddaughter. Please make them welcome. And, you know, they did because like Mary Taylor told <laughs> <laughs> them
2: that's, to. That's a great way to introduce someone. And you, that sounds like a really classic old quicker lady thing to say, too. Like, and that's make them all. Exactly right.
3: <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right. That's exactly right. You know, and they, you know, bent all over themselves being, you know, polite and hospitable. They really did. Um, because Mary told them to. But, you know, there, there, there were, you know, some incidents later on where, you know, they just really doesn't understand. So they're in the New England yearly meeting. So when things got crazy in Sandwich monthly meeting on Cape Cod, and they heard about it, you know, they just assumed that it was something I did, and there was something wrong
0: with me. Mm.
1: <laughs> yeah. Do you want to walk us through? I posted the story. I've just posted um, French Sharon's article on our Facebook and uh-huh. on our Twitter. So uh, uh-huh. anybody who would like to, you can go see that. You can also email us in questions at staff at KEPW.com. I um, no, staff at KEPW.org. Dot, dot org, correct. Yeah. Yes. So if you have any questions for French Sharon. Uh, please email those in. And um, do you, would you like to talk us through the events that cons- that happened?
2: The transpired? Accent. Yeah. Uh,
1: sure.
3: Um, and, you know, that article, you could only tell whatever you had to say in 2,500 words. That's it.
0: Which right. is pretty, pretty condensed. <laughs> there,
3: was, there was so much more to that story. Um, but I got the basic, you know, events. the the critical ones anyway in there um so i've been to cape cod before my mother when she retired from her new york city job moved to cape cod um and she's from massachusetts and that was where she wanted to be when she was retired so um i was not living with her i mean you know um i was grown and a mother myself Mm -hmm. Uh, but i would come and visit and occasionally, uh, somewhere when my mother was in her sixties, she decided that, gee, you know, maybe what God is calling me to do is to, is to, you know, t- work with Quakers on racism and and um, because, I, you know, shocks. <laughs> <laughs> I got all these grandchildren and, and, and grandchildren. <laughs> and she would like, you know, her relatives to come to worship. And um, she liked to bring her grandchildren with her to first grade school uh, when she could. Uh, and so when I was there, um, she used to invite me to. And talk with the friends from Falmouth meeting because she was attending a Falmouth friends meeting, which is part of Sandwich Monthly, but it's not the same as East Sandwich. Mm. Um, and um, you know, I knew who they were; they knew who I was. particularly I would visit, and my mother would invite me to talk about racism, essentially. Uh, but they were ignoring her. I mean, they were you know being kind of paid patronizing and I was aware of what was going on I mean there was a time when my mother called me up I think I was living in Richmond Virginia um, and she said you know I I, I wanted to give a, 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 a workshop on racism for friends and the people at Falmouth meeting would not allow me to have it at their meeting house what? because what? It's, it's because but here's the argument: because race is a scientific misnomer; it's not a real thing. No. And talking about race and no. classifying people as different races is divisive.
1: And what year was this? I'm, you I'm assuming this was 1850 something, right? <laughs> when this happened? <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh Uh
3: oh. When was that? What year? No. No, 1990-something. Oh, wow. my gosh. Yeah, 2000, somewhere in there. Um. <laughs>
1: not, not scientific. Yeah. That's shocking. And, you know, the thing, I feel like Quakers <laughs> often, or not often, but it seems to me, especially sort of in uh, liberal circles or in Quaker circles, too, there's this feeling like, well, you know, we helped end slavery 150 years ago, so we're good. <laughs> Right? Like... <laughs> yeah,
3: and I'm like, Janet Jackson, what have you done for me lately? <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. It's so like, check that off so that we don't have to worry about it anymore, you know?
3: Yeah, you gotta have a sense of humor sometimes. You gotta, you gotta get deadly serious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Oh. <laughs> and on the on the one hand that's it's really shocking to hear um, that a meeting you know wouldn't hear about racism on the other hand um, that you know that makes sense I mean there the argument I've, I've heard people you know in the last five or ten years even make the argument about like oh well racism shouldn't happen because uh, or we shouldn't talk about racism because of it's not it's not a biological construct and um,
1: Oh, because like, because race is a yeah, social construct. Yeah. Ex- exactly. Oh, so, so oh, so it's like the other side liberal argument. Like we yes. shouldn't have to. T- we don't. racism's not a thing because race itself is a social construct. It's like this whole new type of racism.
2: It's that that likes to pretend that it's not it's not real. That this isn't really a problem because uh, because race is um, uh, uh, it's 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 only social. So that somehow makes it it not real. Oh yeah. You know?
1: So do you think that the the whole I don't see color. Has that has that played into this?
3: Uh, well, <laughs> some of the things people said, you know, would, would shock and amaze you, um, and they were serious about it, and and they just knew I didn't know what I was talking about.
0: <laughs> and right, um, <laughs> it's
3: a yeah. Um, I, I kept journals because there were many, uh, many times when, you know, what I said was of no consequence and there was no point in me saying really much of anything, so I would just write down what was happening and what people said. Um, nice. And I have n- notebooks full of that stuff, and mm-hmm. it's just going back over it is mind-boggling. I'm so, you know, so, that, I'm so sorry. That intelligent you. human beings could, you know, be in such denial of reality. Um, and, and it helped me to, to want to study more and understand what, what it is. What is racism and, and, um, how does it function and why does it cause white people to lose their barkety black bark <laughs> <burn?
1: laughs> That's a great question. You were, before the show started, you were talking about, um, white fragility and. Yes. So what, what yes, is. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. What is? Can you explain for our audience if they don't know sort of what white fragility is and how you've seen that in particular? Yeah, we were in just
3: talking about that today. So, um, white fragility is when even a small, a relatively small amount of racial stress, and we have to talk about racial stress as a separate topic, uh, becomes intolerable for white people, and it triggers a range of defensive moves designed to. Sore, white sense of racial equilibrium um, and safety mm. so the behavior that you begin to see when white people are feeling uncomfortable and the situation is racial is anger, silencing minimizing contesting delegitimizing um, and just you know trying to control the narrative the processes and the resources you know, to, to keep it silent and to keep it away because white people don't have to deal with racial stress. They you, you don't, you, Y'all don't have the muscle <laughs> that people of color have to have mm. for constant, all-day 24-7 yeah. stress around race and racism.
0: Yeah.
3: White I, people yeah. can protect themselves from that. So, you know, the the white people's inability to handle any kind of racial stress or sit with any kind of discomfort and the confusion between discomfort and violence um, is what's called white fragility.
1: I have a friend of mine who's a person of color who was telling me that people compliment her all the time on how strong she is. But it always makes her feel worse, and she was sort of working through why why you know what I mean that it doesn't feel like a compliment. And like you just said that it's something that you've like been forced through circumstance to figure out. So sort of it, so it's like that's an interesting thing because like that strength is obviously something that's um, a positive aspect to have that sort of emotional strength, but also has this other side to it. Well,
3: but you know. <laughs> it's white people that are creating the racial stress for people mm-hmm. of color. So, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: when you're when you're listing off those well, those aspects of white fragility, it sounds very much to me just sort of a list of um, emotional abuse, like when when you're in an emotionally yes. abusive relationship. Yes.
3: Absolutely, you are
1: so right. Okay, so so
3: there's you know the whole narrative, especially among Quakers. Okay, and I've learned some things from my experience and learned to recognize certain patterns of behavior. You know, when people call for unity, what they really mean is
0: compliance.
3: Yeah. hmm <laughs> okay. When they talk about uh, being neutral, what they really want want to say is, we want to maintain control Mm
0: -hmm. and we
3: want to continue to dominate and we want you to allow us to do it and be neutral about your own oppression. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm.
1: There's sort of hidden hierarchies. So like when, when an authority, when there is a hierarchy and there is sort of an authoritarian system in place, but then is not recognized as such. And then, you know,
2: it's, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think that there's um, a lot of, a lot of systems of oppression function in similar ways. They're not identical, but they, they often have very similar they characteristics. Do, they
3: do function in similar ways. And the people who, you know, know and, and study and teach about critical race theory will tell you that race is the glue that binds all other oppressions together.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, um, I've read a number of articles... Um, right. By by black people saying that every everything you do in social justice you have to include racial justice, mm-hmm. or you're not getting to the, or you're not actually doing as the kind of good that you think, <laughs> <laughs> or you know what I mean? Like you're not right. getting what you're not getting done what you're trying to get done.
2: You're not going to get justice right. without incorporating racial justice. It's like, right.
1: You're not. You're just yeah. not. And I've had Quakers
3: tell me, you know, that um, class. And classism are more serious issues um, than race. And you know why? Why? Why are you trying to you know get everybody to talk about race when we have bigger problems?
2: That that is so true. Um, and Quakers have a long yeah, history I've heard too
1: that. of. I definitely hurts. I mean, that's part of the like dialogue right now in the whole country about politically. I'm um, trying to like talk a lot about class issues when there's this huge underlying race issue that's not being addressed fully.
2: I mean, I, th- so, I think th- there's a lot of oppression that's not being addressed, but yeah, yeah, yeah. but you
1: know what I mean? Yeah. yeah
3: well, but here's the thing, though: the 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 origin of most of those oppressions comes out of racism. Mm-hmm and um, I can explain that further (laughs) I didn't hear you go yeah 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 that's true (laughs) so (laughs) the notion that white people are superior and our whole class system is designed to benefit white people Mm -hmm. at the expense of people of color Mm -hmm. so that's where our class structure was that's how the American class structure was built from the beginning,
0: mm-hmm.
3: and it's important to have a historical understanding of how the system was constructed because race uh, or white supremacy is a, system- a systemic thing; it's not an individual thing.
2: Absolutely. Right,
1: so the so this is uh, this is an anarchist podcast, also, and sort of the anarchist theory on this is that you have wealth doesn't come from nowhere. Wealth comes either from resources or from labor. So any, wh- any wealth that's existed came from somebody's labor or came from some sort of natural resource. So all of this wealth inequality, that there's like huge amounts of money that people had, that came originally from someone's labor. So if the labor, the, the cheapest labor, where you get the most profit out of somebody by stealing the most of their wages is of course slavery, when you don't pay them any wages at all. So, you know what I mean? So it's like every ounce of slavery that has happened, that's the money that is now the wealth at the top of the pyramid.
3: Yeah, well, it gets more complicated when you have uh, labor that is not labeled labor, but is labeled property. Ah, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to simplify that for you and say wealth comes from exploitation, period. mm
1: Yep, that's, that's a, that's a that's you so like, just said it much so better like it. than I did. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs>
0: you
3: know, that's where wealth comes from. It comes from exploitation, and regardless of, you know, how they are exploiting, whether it's the environment, which is, you know, or, or people, or property, or, or whatever. You know, that's where it comes from. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, it's, and it's important you know, I think also to think of this as as a global system. Like, the United States has a has a particular history um, with slavery and and with uh, capitalism and ownership, and and there's a there's a lot of particular histories there. But it's also part of this broader like colonialism and like European colonialism and like domination in the world. Um, and that like r- race in the United States didn't emerge overnight either that it was like it's as a process um and there's a really fantastic uh series of books on this the invention of the white race that goes into the entire like history of colonialism and looks at the different components and how race has played out differently in different areas um as a part of different colonial aspects um um
0: yeah
3: i'm familiar with those two volumes yeah yeah uh Uh, i i read a
2: lot (laughs) yeah
3: yeah, reading's that, great. Sorry, I, <laughs> I, I was mentioned long, that
2: mostly for our, <laughs> for our listeners. I spend a lot of time yeah, for, for and their, and for, for and, their and their the reading. more
3: the more history I read, the more, you know, damning the picture
1: becomes. Yeah. Hey, do you have any recommendations right now? I'm going to write some books down. We can write it. We can write it on our notes for the podcast for people who want to do some further reading. Um.
3: Yeah. Can we do that afterwards, yes. and yes. I can just email it to you?
1: That's, quite, that's a better idea. Yeah. <laughs> I have a. Yeah. We'll, we'll I get we'll so. I, I get so excited. I was like, Oh,
3: book!
0: Um. Tell me more. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um. But but um yeah, the invention of
3: the white race is is good. Uh, the second book is better than the first book. Because, well, the first book is interesting, but you know, talking about the construct of race and whiteness uh, is really handled in the second book. Um, the second volume, yeah, but but there's another one called um, um, uh, "Birth of a White Nation" mm. by a woman named Batalora, and she goes into you know the history of the race construct in the Americas
0: um,
3: and, and, the, and and the and and the legal construct. The history of the legal construct of race—that's well, fascinating.
2: That
0: Absolutely. sounds
2: really interesting. Um, there's, an, yeah, another book in that line is uh, "White by Law" that goes into the histories of um, of in the United States legal mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. legal constructs. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
3: that's a good one too. It, it's a little bit dense and academic. Yeah. yeah, "Birth of a White Nation" is easier to read. Um. Yeah, but there's a lot of good material out there, and you know, in in when we're talking about white fragility, you know, there's a there's a distinct disconnect between what white people believe about our society and what people of color believe about our society, um, and you know, um, the, the the fragility is one thing, but then you know resilience can be learned, Mm. Mm -hmm. all right? (laughs) People of color have to learn it. It's a survival strategy. White people don't have to, but they can. But they can.
2: And should.
3: Yes. Yes. Okay? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, basically suck it up, buttercrop. You know, I mean, white people are funny. I mean, I can't tell you the numbers of times I've been just simply telling the truth. Mm -hmm. And somebody says, well, you know, why did you attack me? Yeah.
1: Um, it's like well, I'm not sure why you took that so personally. You must have thought it applied directly to you because you're kind of racist. Does that Is that, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> Is that <what> just happened? <laughs> so then it's like yeah. if, if you're getting defensive about something, it's like that. It's like who are you? Def- why are you defending yourself? You must have recognized it within yourself, right?
2: Understood that that was yeah. But
1: it's I all think. about it's all about who you identify
3: uh-huh. with in the scenario, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I but to speaking about like people having totally different versions of the world, I read some horrific statistic that something like seventy or eighty percent of white cops think racism's like over. Like the civil <laughs> that, that civil rights fixed it in the sixties and that it's not a thing anymore.
3: I don't know about cops. I don't know about cops, but I have some, you know, quick statistics to read to you. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um Two-thirds of white Americans believe that the death of black men at the hands of police are isolated incidents. Yep. Mm-hmm. White Christians are even higher at around 72%.
1: Oh, mm-hmm. man. That is a... That is a... That is not
2: a good number. That is a, that is a damning statistic.
1: Oh. <laughs> oh, see, I was I was thinking on the radio. Is the transmitter down? Well, but,
3: if, we but there's that. a... But, but, <laughs> but, 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 but white supremacy allows white people to insulate themselves with mythology and choose to believe what reality is real because they are not impacted by the reality you know they they have white people because white supremacy is constructed the way it is Mm -hmm. white people have the resources and the wherewithal to isolate and insulate themselves into little bubbles of reality self-segregating it's called And don't have to really be aware of what's going on with people of color. Mm -hmm. And this is really disturbing. Over 50% of white Americans think American society has mostly changed for the worst since 1950.
1: Which is... Well, and that seems to be probably not true for the the people of color in this country. There's been a lot of...
3: Well, you know... It has for them. It has for them. And... It is, that's what it is for them
1: Yeah
3: Now, but that's deeply disturbing when you consider what life was like for most people of color before the 1960s Right, yeah. right the, Okay, so they've learned to separate themselves from the rest of humanity That's that whole white right superiority it's thing It's right. People,
1: yeah, it's like people become just like used to the system as it is, you know, around the time of May Day, um, when there was a whole lot of kerfuffle and media attention on sort of the quote-unquote like riots in Portland, uh, A couple, nobody got hurt. Uh, a Cops got some rocks thrown at them. Uh, cops threw uh-huh. tons of tear gas uh-huh. into a crowd of children and elderly, <laughs> which was terrifying. And then some windows got broken and one medic got hit by a can of Pepsi but was, wasn't hurt. At the same time, almost almost at the same time, within at least a few days I read on the route that a white guy in Southern California just holding a drink, just in a crowd of black people, pulled out a gun and shot seven people. What? Just holding his drink, just casually. Yeah. Pull mm-hmm. out and and that story I only heard about it on the route. Like I didn't see it anywhere else. And mm-hmm. so it's like we've just become exactly. so divorced. Well it's become so
3: common now that, you know, I mean it's It's been normalized, which is pretty sick.
1: That's, it's disgusting.
3: Yes, yes. Let me read you another statistic. Half of white Americans think non-white Americans receive equal treatment in the criminal justice system.
1: Whoa. I've
2: I've heard that (laughs) before. That is laughable business.
1: How do you, what? I can't even with that.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Half of white Americans think non-white Americans receive equal treatment in the criminal justice system. Oh,
1: man. I just heard um, my, there's a book by a mathematician who's a statistician who went into sort of the social justice realities of statistics and how they are sort of warped and messed up. Mm -hmm. And she she discovered that everybody in our country is assigned a number that is a Mm -hmm. conglomeration of their zip code and their credit score. And they use that yeah, number. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah, and they use that number to um, determine how likely somebody is um, for recidivism when they end up back in the system. And if they think that you are more likely to end up back in the system, they'll just give you a longer sentence. So people from a bad neighborhood with bad credit are will end will end up automatically having longer, worse sentences just literally because of those two st- statistics about them. Isn't that just disgusting? Yeah, well don't...
3: that brings up a question though When you say recidivism They apply that that Data about people's credit Ratings Before they even are picked up And charged with anything
0: mm-hmm.
3: For the first time Right?
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Okay I think well, so. a, Another insidious um, System at work also In public school Based on reading scores um, by fourth
0: grade,
3: uh, for-profit prisons are built. Estimating, you know, by reading scores in fourth grade, how many of those kids are going to end up incarcerated? Oh,
1: oh that is the so. The school-to-prison
0: pipeline. Oh, yeah. I,
1: maybe you could go in for a second about why. I can already hear white people saying, "Like, yeah, well, white people have bad neighborhoods and poor credit scores." So, like, why was that irrelevant? you know why are the you know white people are in public schools so like maybe speak to sort of why i why that even Sort of systemic, the idea well, of systemic idea, systemic oppression. There's,
3: there's plenty of data on that, and I don't think we ought to spend our time talking about that. Okay, yeah. perfect. Actually, <laughs> yeah. maybe let's get I, back so to I the. If I knew we were going to, I would have had the data.
1: <laughs> it just got so yeah. interesting. Um, let's go back. Let's actually, yeah, let's take it uh, back to your story about Quakers and within your own meeting, what happened?
2: Yeah, and and I think it's I think it's interesting that we talked about some of the some of the national statistics, um, and also sort of um, in the um, in the Friends Journal article you mentioned. Um, that there was there was a couple of things that were going on in the community around that time that happened. One was that um, an Indigenous person, a Wampanoag man, um, was uh, beaten with, within an inch of his life, um, and that there was uh-huh. a, there was a cross burning at a local school, uh-huh. um, and uh-huh. and it uh-huh. was the response to the cross burning that triggered uh, the response from. Um, from the meeting and from uh, uh, from the peace and justice committee that you were a part of, um, and um, can you talk a little bit about that incident and and um, sure, why and why the why you felt like responding um, and why the why the meeting uh, why that felt important at that time?
3: Okay, so um, what? Um, how much more time do we have?
2: We we've got another uh, about eighteen minutes.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: it's flown by.
1: Actually, this is, if you if you want to keep going,
0: uh, okay. We've been, we've been well, given... folks
3: will have to read the article. But essentially, what happened was there was a cross burning in the town of Sandwich in front of an elementary school the day after governor romney announced that we would be having hurricane katrina survivors on the military base which a bus sandwich and um to which some of the children from new orleans might go to school Mm. and the local police investigative unit uh decided that it was a kid prank not a hate crime because it was not done right so it was a five foot cross not an eight foot cross and Uh, whoever put it together didn't know
2: it
1: right (laughs) if you don't if you don't do your cross burning correctly like you get
2: it doesn't qualify as a hate crime (laughs) wow
1: that's i kid you not and the
3: only reason i know that part of the story is because my sister's husband is wampanoag and his grandfather used to be chief of police in Nashby on Cape Cod, mm. back in the day when mostly tribal people were on the, you know, community offices in Nashby before it got taken over by white real estate developers, um, and he always listens to police band radio, and he heard the police officers talking about why this was not a hate crime.
2: Wow. Wow. <laughs>
1: okay. It's it's not the in, it's not the fact that it's hateful and horrible. It's the fact that your how tall your cross is. I I'm a, I'm just speechless right now. They I decided
3: don't. it was not a hate crime because the cross wasn't constructed right. It was a five foot cross, not an eight foot cross. Must be a kid prank, and they and they ruled it arson. Okay, instead of um. A hate crime, a cross burning. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm the just, local police the, the local president of the NAACP at the time was his he he was flabbergasted.
1: Yeah. <laughs> he, Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't even just like totally I'm just, <laughs> flabbergasted and
3: you know was asking them, you know, basically, what are you thinking? <laughs> hey,
2: yeah.
3: Um, and my niece was a student, I think in the second grade at that school
2: wow
3: okay, my sister's oldest who's now in college um yes, and so, at the East Sandwich meeting was closest to where it happened, and they had just asked me to be clerk of the Peace and Social Concerns Committee
0: mm-hmm. yes.
3: and And I had agreed, and um, the Racial Justice Committee had done some development work, (laughs) and they decided that they wanted their ministry to be about racism and local racism, not racism in Afghanistan or India or Israel or wherever, but dealing with local racial issues. And that was what the Racial Justice Committee committed themselves to. So when this happened, I said to the racial justice committee, "Okay, this happened. What do y'all want to do? Do you want to, you know, have uh, be a part of this or or what?"
0: Yeah, yeah. And
3: they asked me to draft a letter to the police chief in Cambridge and to the Cape Cod Times and the Boston Globe. You know, they just send it around. Um, In essence, supporting the president of the NAACP's assertion that a a cross-burning is, by definition, a hate crime. So I I did that. I drafted the letter, um, and the committee approved it, and short of, you know, with with minor, minor changes to what I wrote, um, they sent it out. Well sandwich monthly meeting has a very strange structure that's very archaic The sandwich friends meeting is the oldest speaker meeting in the hemisphere from 16 I don't know what um, and they have the archaic British system where they have three preparative meetings that make up one monthly meeting on Cape Cod
0: mm.
3: and so that meant that they have business meeting every other month
1: Oh, interesting.
0: And
3: the, yes. And they have the preparative meeting, and then there's the business, the monthly business meeting, where all three of the preparative meetings come together hmm. every other month. Um, and we had uh, just had <clears throat> our preparative business meeting, wasn't come, you know, and uh we weren't going to have another monthly meeting with the other two meetings on Cape Cod for a, a while. So we read Faith in Practice, New England yearly meeting Faith in Practice,
0: <laughs>
3: and learned that there is no rule saying that a committee cannot write a letter in its
2: own name. Sure.
1: I mean, yeah, it seems like a strange thing for there to be a rule about.
2: And in
3: the yeah, but there is now.
1: They made they made a rule after this happened.
3: Yes.
2: Wow.
1: Wow. To, to make sure that there are no other upstarts? And it
3: became, that became one of the issues of contention in the monthly meeting. They tried to say that the committee didn't have the right to send this out to the public. And what they really, really didn't like was that, as close as uh, peace and social concerns, my name was on the letter.
1: I don't even understand why, I don't, I don't even understand why that's, that your name was on it. They didn't I like
3: that you're decent social concerns, so if we're sending a letter to the Cape Cod Times has and to the Boston it. Globe and the police chief as clerk of the committee, my name has to be on the letter.
1: Right, of course. So why so So here's what my
3: mother like... said. I was at East Sandwich and my mother was at Falmouth. My mother said the letter came out in the Cape Cod Times. There's a woman that found meeting who is one of the editors at the Cape Cod Times. And she brought it to Falmouth's attention that that woman, Sharon Smith, was promoting her political agenda in their name and made them approve of that.
1: Wow! That's so awful. Your, your, politi- your political agenda—that a five-foot cross is maybe a bad thing, like a burning cross. Like at
2: an elementary school? <laughs> yeah. That burning a cross at an elementary, elementary school? school. That's like, like. come on. How dare
1: how dare you try and point out, in the name of a meeting, that they're not that they're not okay with that? I'm. Yeah. St-
2: <laughs> I mean, and and the other thing that, and I, I appreciate that you mentioned this in the um, in the article too, is that the that you had also brought it before an elder of the meeting and sort of check, you know, an. Asked about this. Yeah, um, we
3: checked. We checked. We yeah. wanted to make sure because there were elders that were part of the racial justice on the Peace and Social concerns Committee. Mm. My mother helped us with that. Mm. And there were, you know, elder Quaker historians that were there when we did this. And, and you know, it was the committee that sent the letter. I didn't even send it, but they had to, by proper order, put my name as clerk on the bottom of the letter. So people in Falmouth, were horrified that I would dare represent them.
0: So I, okay,
3: I mean, and a whole host of different arguments and strategies were, you know, were creatively invented in order to deal with the issue of silencing Sharon Smith because we don't want her to represent us.
0: So um, we don't
3: want her name on
1: anything that has to do with us. And weren't you saying that this is a this is a normal. Precedent to just ask and then have the committee do it. Like the North Pacific New Yearly Meeting had something like that happen, right? Where the, well, the we're, same we're, process.
2: We're talking about this in the need. This, with this the need of ha- making an expedient decision. Um, yeah. The, the, the Peace and Justice Committee of the North Pacific Yearly Meeting here uh, in the Pacific Northwest um, did a, a similar process um, uh, regarding indigenous treaty rights um, and, um, and water rights, and there was a real. There was a real question about what the what the process should be and um, uh, and did go ahead and, and had the the clerk of the uh, of the peace and justice Committee at the at the yearly meeting level signed a letter so it's it's you it's know, not it, it, like it's, it's
1: out of. It's not like it's super. Yeah, it, it's crazy not. It's weird. not the.
2: It's not the common usual Quaker process where um, a letter will be brought up to the meeting business and then seasoned, um, and then any recommendations be made and changed, and that would usually happen over a couple months. Um, but um, but there are things that that require an urgent response. Um, right. I mean,
1: if you have a business meeting every every two months, and then you know the Quaker consensus processes can be so slow anyway, it seems just any reasonable person would see that and uh, if you if we're a, if we're a society a religious society that has that cares about these sorts of issues that it would be w- within a totally normal acceptable thing to do is to try and get an expedient response out um so it's it doesn't it they just it just doesn't hold any water <laughs> yeah well you know that
3: and i know that yeah, <laughs> but according to them talking about racism is divisive. Mm. Yeah.
2: And they and they responded <laughs> to that um uh, <laughs> by then it's it sounds like yeah. then they uh then, they asked you not to come back to the devices. meeting house.
3: Mm. Um Oh, well that came way later. Okay, <laughs> okay they sent a number of people to Elder Me.
1: Um, so, so it did happen You know and
3: instruct me And in what was appropriate and what wasn't mm. And that just Pissed them off Excuse my use of the vernacular Because my mother is a, is a Quaker I was raised a Quaker And I know what Is appropriate for a Quaker
2: Absolutely right.
3: But basically they were trying to Smell me And to, and, and subtly intimidate me Mm. Um, yes Um, and and I would have none of it I mean they asked me they actually asked me in one of those we had so many meetings (laughs) to deal with the Sharon Smith issue you know first they tried to say that you know we don't promote you know, political agendas, um, you know, in Quakers, the name of Quakers don't promote. And me. I said, well, this was not a political agenda since one is just not a spiritual concern. Mm-hmm. And, Absolutely. And, and, um, uh, what did they, what else did they say? They asked me if I was would be willing to find unity with them and to put my cultural and, and, political issues aside to find unity with them in Christ. They actually asked me that.
2: Right, like, why don't you just erase yourself? That'd
1: be much easier. That'd be
3: much
2: easier for us. (laughs) (laughs) They
3: did. They actually asked me that. That's one of the things I wrote down in my journal. Wow. Wow. I was at the meeting, and that's why I would just take notes, because... I was trying not to be triggered and kick the mask. <laughs> I was like, "Can we have a paper and a pen and just write this shit down? Because who is going to believe it otherwise?" <laughs> I do have to remind you:
1: is we should find out is the transmitter down? Okay, I think our transmitter's down, so that's okay. But it, but we are going to try and um, it is a radio show, so try. It. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, um,
0: I, I, I it felt,
1: down, do you know, I, I felt that it's hard to talk about things like I on our first episode, like you, these issues. It's it's hard to keep it clean on the radio sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, okay, it
3: went down because of words oh, I used. <laughs> oh
1: yeah, <that? laughs> no, 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 it was already down. Some kind of other thing. It so. was already down. Yeah, okay, yeah so we're not actually right. on the air. We're only on the streaming on the.
0: Internet.
1: Internet. So. Yeah.
3: Okay Alright But we're still
1: We're still so good We're still so good no. Yeah We're you're no. you're They're so not that quick On the uptake <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> Okay 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 I'll, I'll clean it up
1: <laughs> uh. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't I don't blame you though Because what you're What you're describing Is really horrific
3: and Yeah I mean They literally Asked me If I would Put my cultural And political Issues aside To find unity With them in Christ now, I was raised as a universalist friend,
0: and I never
3: saw any different, you know, any any conflict between, you know, what I do ceremonially with my indigenous folk and our indigenous worldview between that and, and Quakerism. Christianity, I, I can't relate to.
1: Oh, so a universalist, so uh, for the audience, the difference between a universalist friend and a sort of Christian friend, so it's sort of like the Unitarian Universalism versus sort of uh, normal Protestant Christianity, normal, quote-unquote. Is that that's sort of what... Yeah, exactly, okay.
3: exactly. You know, and I have my own theories about what George Fox was really trying to do, you know. <laughs> that, that's another talk, not today.
2: another another show Mm -hmm. um yeah
1: Um, so um i'm gonna say um we've been given we've been given oh oh so first okay we'll see uh so we've been given permission by this station to go as long as we want actually and this conversation is great so as long as you want to keep talking to us we want to keep talking to you I'm uh-huh. um, cool.
3: But, We're good. We're good. Okay, I, great. I, I've got lots of stories. <laughs> and, you know, but we really, I really, the reason I want to talk about this experience with Quaker racism is because Quakers all over the country and the world are looking at what they can do about racism. Yes, yes. So I do and have to I do have pretty to stop you. pretty much every yearly meeting has made some commitment to undo racism or, you know, whatever terminology they use. Um, and they're just not doing anything. I mean, they're not making any progress.
1: So I have to cut in for just a second and say uh, you are now listening to KEPW LPFM 97.3 Eugene Homegrown Radio. And this is Friendly Anarchism. We're speaking now with uh, friend Sharon Smith about her... Experiences with racism in the Quaker community. All right, so the Quakers have all their writing minutes saying that racism is bad, and then <laughs> treating you like yeah. This. I mean, I you know my
3: mother was um, the first clerk of New England yearly meetings working group on race, working party on racism. They called it. Um, so back in 2000 or something like that, late nineties, 2000, while I was still living in Richmond, Virginia, um, at new England yearly meeting, a bunch of people, friends of color and white people with children of color went to yearly ministry and council and said, look, you know, we've got to do something about racism among friends because, we're we're experiencing racism in our monthly meetings, and how is yearly meeting going to address it? Yeah. Um, and so, what uh, what they ended up doing was creating a committee that was um, out of New England yearly meeting ministry and council, um, like a, um, yeah, a committee of ministry and council that uh, was called that they called the Working Party on Racism um, with people who, um, friends from New England, weighty friends from New England, by the way, who, who felt called to address this issue. And my mother was the first clerk of that committee.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. So while the folks on Cape Cod didn't want to talk about racism and talking about it as divisive, my mother was doing her work at the yearly meeting level as well. And
2: Oh, and and nationally, these conversations were were My were growing um, in, in yearly meet- meetings across yeah. the nation.
1: That's great to have All a mother yeah.
3: that is involved. Yes, and um, in that. Yeah, So so um, Philadelphia yearly meeting did that a couple of years ago. You know, they came out with a statement of how they were going to undo racism and. Um, new england yearly meeting 2001 they did this whole process where they sent out yeah. questionnaires and queries to all the monthly meetings in new england and everybody was yeah. supposed to be working on those in their meeting and give feedback and then in the floor of sessions i believe it was 2001 could have been 2002 um the body at sessions approved the minute on racism now what happened to me started in
1: 2005
2: after that um yes
1: all right so they've got a minute so they're good right i mean (laughs)
2: but
3: this is a pattern we are seeing all across quaker Quaker Mm quakerdom you know folks want to do right but they don't know how and they really want to control the process and they're not wanting to hear some friends of color that are saying to them hello ouch we're suffering here
0: yeah
3: I mean, New England Yearly Meeting totally flashed what happened with yeah. them they tried, they really tried you know, in the initial days you know, I was going to the working party on racism meetings along with my mother and another friend from Cape Cod and we were, you know, they they knew me <laughs> 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 yeah. before that incident happened so they were aware step by step never what but 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 it was it was when <laughs> The day that they called the police to have me dragged off the meeting house properly, uh, property for uh, wha- disorderly
1: uh, conduct. Wait, what? <laughs> wait, hold on. Wait, what? <laughs> I assume that <coughs> your cross was at least eight feet tall that you had, were burning on your, because otherwise, because, you know what I mean? No, like, no I don't. <laughs>
3: Quakers, East Sandwich meeting, okay? Remember there was that letter in the about the cross burning, supporting the NAACP. And then people and friends in Falmouth were horrified that Sharon Smith would dare promote her political agenda in the name of friends. And um, they uh, actually approved uh, a letter to the editor right then and there that same day in Falmouth that nobody signed um, that just said. Uh, found a friend's meeting at the bottom and the whole meeting approved it right then and there on the spot after worship mm. <laughs> I know this because my mother was there and she told me what happened <laughs> um, she told me who drafted the letter that was the day she decided I can't worship here anymore I'm going to eat Sandwich we're sharing it
2: so this was a, a different, um this is a different meeting or different preparatory group wrote a a contradictory letter to the one that you had written
3: yes and it was a whole lot of words that basically in a roundabout way said there's no proof that that cross-fitting was a hate crime
1: (laughs) (laughs) so so it says your and then your letter got completely vanished from the archives at the Cape Cod times she said
3: yes um, it completely vanished But it was, but the reason it completely, because I looked for it, I asked people that were still on Cape Cod to go looking for it in the archives of the Cape Cod Times, to go into the archives of New England Yearly Meeting, because Falmouth was so proud of themselves. They would have like, you know, six or eight page meeting newsletters where, you know, people would. They had all kinds of stuff. It's <laughs> <They laughs> <laughs> like the longest me meeting newsletter I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> <laughs> And they were so proud of themselves and what they were producing that they would send copies to the, you know, archives at meetings and you meetings right. and they That they were documenting themselves, right? Right, right,
1: <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> so we can go okay. back and read it later. <laughs> yes,
3: yes, yes. Um, so, so, so they had that in their newsletter, and it should have been in the archives of the Cape Cod Times because they sent it to the Cape Cod Times, and I remember reading it in the Cape Cod Times. But for some reason, you know what happens when two Quaker meetings are at each other's throats? Um, you know they're contradicting each other in public, mm-hmm. in the press. Okay, <laughs> reason, you know, what Minis- monthly ministry and council, which includes Falmouth, Sandwich, and Yarmouthport, further down on the Cape, all came together, and the way they de- and and Paul Newman, who. Another story unto himself <laughs> um, was our representative from East Sandwich meeting to Sandwich uh, Monthly Ministry and Council um, came back and told me that that was a, you know that was a wild meeting because you know he and Eric Edwards were shouting at each other, calling each other names, and I can't repeat them on the air.
1: <laughs> wow. You know, we're such a quiet, demure folk us Quakers
3: <laughs> well I
0: was
3: <laughs> okay so Paul Newton and, uh, from East Sandwich and Eric Edwards from Falmouth were, were shouting at each other and calling each other names um, but the way they managed to bring each other bring everybody back to unity was to decide that Sharon Smith was the problem and we had to deal with her each other.
1: wow oh man
3: okay um, <laughs> yep, that's, that's how they handled it At least how they tried to handle it. Then they started talking to members of East Sandwich Ministry and uh, East Sandwich Peace and Social Concerns, the members of the committee that I was clerk of, and try and explain to them that they shouldn't allow Sharon to hijack their committee with her political agenda.
2: Yes, because how dare they?
1: What? I mean you're a clerk. So like what <laughs> I mean even just like if you're going to I just I,
2: I'm
3: But you but just, it was a committee process and the committee tried to explain it to these <laughs> people. <laughs> 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 I mean fools is what they are, right?
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I but I'm just I just go I keep telling your story. I'm just like flabbergasted. I'm having a hard time
3: like, <laughs> <just> <laughs> But reacting. it happened. It's real. Yes, yeah. it's,
1: yeah. it's real. It's real. It did happen,
3: yeah. okay?
0: Absolutely.
3: Yeah. Um, and and you know from the beginning from that moment I you know I was telling New England yearly meetings, working party on racism, what was and happening? They were getting regular reports. And, you know, from the Not only that, moment, but I was doing this was Quaker anti-racism the work, New you know, meetings, outside of, of New England yearly meeting too. At that period, there were several yearly meetings that were trying to collaborate on doing anti-racism work. There was New England yearly meeting, there was New York yearly meeting, there was Baltimore yearly meeting, and there was Philadelphia yearly meeting.
1: Yeah. Were you having? Uh, any they
3: had, they had a conference. At least two different. One conference that I went to in Burlington, New Jersey. Okay, where all those yearly meetings were represented. And they had a conference. I kept the mailing list and email addresses of everybody that went to those things. And I was sending regular reports to all these anti unquote, anti-racist yeah. friends.
1: Yeah. In
3: all those yearly meetings.
1: So, quote, unquote. So a buzz started to, and
3: this was pre-Facebook. <laughs> and I was the mm.
0: to all these the buzz day-to-day. started
3: happening in the yearly meeting. You know, what's going on there? And people started calling up. You know how Quakers are, you know. There's a lot behind the scenes. Silent in meeting. You know, there was, you know, people from, you know, the... What's going on there? monthly meeting lost their... Blankety blank. <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: what I
3: haven't heard. I, I like that. They they lost it <laughs> when they got a letter from Atlanta Friends meeting. Saying essentially, you know, what's going on with you guys? I hear you're having a problem. How can we help? <laughs> I
0: think you're having a problem. They lost
3: it. They lost it. That's when they started to get hostile. What's um. Because now everybody else knows. You know, abusers and oppressors don't like it when other people get involved in what they're doing in their
1: house. I mean, it was already hostile, but now it's, like, openly hostile. Yeah, Like, like they were quietly hostile just to you, and now it's just, like, just open, open affair
3: on you. And New England Yearly Meeting wasn't handling it very well. They were just kind of monitoring the situation, but they weren't coming in saying, you know, what's wrong with you?
1: <laughs> wow
3: <laughs> they, they just worked. I mean everybody was trying to be neutral and um, protecting the uh, here's, here's, uh, I, heres here's part of the problem. People in Sandwich were saying that their feelings were being hurt, and that I was attacking them by calling them racists all over the country, and they felt like they needed to defend themselves, and that they were not safe in their own meetings as long as I was there.
1: But I mean, that's the thing about being neutral. You know, the quote: "If you're neutral in situations of injustice, you've chosen the side of the oppressor." So, yes, and I
3: said say that quite a bit, and type it quite a bit, and you know, <laughs> yes. Exactly, but they were trying to, you know, love and, you know, the people who would who, who were the oppressors and understand them and listen to them. And when Sandwich said that, you know, they were hurt, New England Yearly Meeting left me hanging. I asked the clerk of New England Yearly Meeting, I asked the clerk of Ministry and Council for New England Yearly Meeting to intercede... To help us stay in process and to help us with a reconciliation process.
2: Yeah.
3: You know what they told me? What
2: did they say?
3: And we weren't invited by the by the by the monthly meeting. They said that they resented our interference in what they consider a local matter, so we can't interfere.
2: That just sounds like the classic segregationist line, you know, you outside agitators coming in. Like, I mean, that's just that's just unacceptable. Well, and, and,
1: and like even like a let's let's figure this out. Like coming to the table in a cooperative, like spirit, and then just being like shut down in such a it's just I,
2: it, I, 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 <laughs> it's true but it's she unbelievable. Does, okay? I, it's, it, it,
1: I mean it's just it's just one of those things where it's like again going back to this just sort of emotional abuse classic blaming the victim like classic it's just just so gross. I'm so sorry. Well, it is
3: what it is. I mean, you know huh. I consider that my call to ministry. To challenge Quakers on their
1: racism,
3: and I've been doing it ever since.
1: How's it going? Are you having any luck?
3: <laughs> Man, it's been an adventure. I can tell you that. And I've learned. Man, <laughs> excuse me. Been I've learned a great deal.
1: <laughs> Has anybody else learned anything? <laughs> I'm afraid to ask. White. And white people are are hard to. Well, here's the thing.
3: I I do believe that at this point, you know, when I met, if it's Wanda McClinton, and she was just disowned, or no, they didn't call it disowning. My minute of disownment is called disowning. What happened to Ava is that she was read out of her meeting. I was read out of sandwich Monthly. And I wasn't even a member, I was an (laughs) attender. okay.
2: And for our listeners, uh, Wanda McClinton also has uh, an article in Friends' journal. Um, yes, and, and yes, the uh, same issue. Mm-hmm. And in and in a, in a different meeting, and in a different uh, different yearly meeting, um, and
1: but I, I, ten years
2: later. Yeah.
1: And I, I also want to mention ten year, exactly ten years later. Mm-hmm. I want to mention for people that are listening <clears throat> that maybe not Quakers that not being a member. Of a Quaker meeting doesn't mean the same thing as if you're like in a different church situation. It's not like you're really. It's really not that different being an attendee versus you know, or a you know, quote unquote guest or attendant versus a quote unquote well, member. Like there's, that's it's not. It's not like a, a, a question specific. of
2: formal recognition. Yeah, it's
1: just a yeah. So just in case,
2: but there, are yeah, but
1: but 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 the, over
3: this racism thing, there has become a, there are distinctions being made
0: mm-hmm.
3: because. Yeah, and, and I see the same pattern. So because I had that experience 10 years ago, like, for example, the cross-burning was in September 2005, and I received the, the letter of disownment in January
0: 2007.
3: That whole period, crazy stuff was going on. Absolutely insane that I just, you know, all I could do was document it. Ten years later, when I meet up with Avis Wanda McClinton and I see what her situation is, and we are the only two friends of color that I know who have gone through a similar experience, and we totally understood each other. We both by you know on the phone at first. Um, somebody in Philadelphia Yearly Meeting who was fascinated by my story and actually took the train to Northern Virginia when I was living there from Philadelphia so she could spend the weekend with me and hear my story. Oh,
1: wow, that's really nice.
3: Yeah, well, there are problems with her later. but (laughs) (laughs) But She knew Avis Wanda from Philadelphia Yearly Meeting, and it was she that brought us together by phone. And then I went to Philadelphia for their first called uh, yearly meeting session to talk about, you know, what the Quaker response to racism was going to be. Um, and I stayed with Avis, and I got to know her. And over the, you know, the course of the time that we've known each other, uh, which is basically only a couple of years, um, three at the most. Um, I been really helpful to her, because she was going through the same thing I was going through, but she didn't understand it, and I could see the pattern emerging. Yeah. mm -hmm. Okay? Because it all looked and felt like the same thing. Mm -hmm. I could smell them coming. Now I'm so good. I am the foremost expert on Quaker racism. (laughs) Trust me on
1: that. Well, I'm glad we're talking to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How how do you think yes. it is that Quakers have gotten so far from their abolitionist past? You know.
3: Well, here, you, have you read Vanessa July and uh, Donna McDaniel's book?
1: No, I have not.
3: You must. You must.
1: Vanessa.
3: Um. Vanessa July spelled J-U-L-Y-E.
1: And what's the, Donna
3: McDaniel, Donna. Um, it's called um, It's for Freedom, Not for Friendship mm-hmm. African Americans and mm-hmm. the Myth of Racial Justice and Quakers and some more stuff African mm-hmm. American Quakers and the Myth of Racial
0: Justice
3: It's a SGC publication
0: It is required
3: reading and for Quakers, Quakers in awesome. the-
1: Absolutely. okay great, that's great I will do that
3: It's because it details the history and the struggle friends had with each other over slavery. Awesome.
1: Okay, great. That's great. Wasn't that one and of,
3: abolition and and abolition.
1: Wasn't that one of the a big issue about why the Quaker meeting and the Friends Church broke with each other? And abolition and, and abolition. I no, that, that was different. Okay, uh-uh. that's a different thing. Okay, no, no, mind. <laughs> no, 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 no. Their argument was
3: was was philosophical. It had nothing to do with economics or slavery or, or okay. Basis. Well, forget I said that. No. No, 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 no. But but you must read that book because it's necessary background to understand the history, have the historical analysis of why Quakers is so messed up now. Ah,
1: that's great. i thank you for that recommendation.
2: <laughs> and, and part of the part of the thesis of that book for our our, our listeners um, is that um, following the Civil War, many Quakers have advocated. Um, for uh, abolition of slavery, but then had turned, um, ha, but then had turned down um, uh, African American people who wanted to become members, wanted to become friends, yes. Um, yes. and refused yes. membership to them.
3: Yes, yes, turned. exactly, and that that history needs to be understood because it is the root from which our current problems yes. arise. Um, and white Quakers today are no better than the average white liberal racism denier.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, are capable because of their privileged economic status um, and racial status to isolate themselves from reality mm-hmm. and create a whole, you know, fantasy world that is real for them and nobody else. Mm-hmm.
1: That's true, you know, especially you know, working in social justice, sort of in a more radical sphere here, um, anarchists often and people that we're working with, um, wobblies and sort of a more radical elements, often have problems with liberals, specifically, like m- uh-huh. like making our work harder, <laughs> you know. So it's it's sort of it's um or you know sort of coming into situations that are are being planned and creating a hierarchy and putting themselves at the top of it. When or like stepping in with knowledge that that's not relevant or you know or sort of um, denying situations, I feel like right now a lot of the problems we're having is we're saying with the situation we're in right now with like how under just how bad Donald Trump is and how scary this situation is we need more we need more radical like we need just to be really working really hard on um, a more, like, local, spe- locally specific level, like, shoring up community connections and shoring up um, strength and making self-sustaining local systems of sort of, if we can, you know, like, self-governance and, like, strengthening neighborhoods associations and these sorts of things because what we're looking at is, like, the failure of the federal government system, but then um, a lot... Sometimes that work can be undermined by liberal... liberals... And sort of yes, like
0: fighting it against you know, it. know, always is. It always is. Yeah, you know, like it
1: in
3: Portland. Is undermined by liberals. Yeah. You know, w- people of color have been fighting for justice for the last 500 years. Mm-hmm. Yes. And liberals yeah, know don't Portland appreciate that. Yeah. You know, people number one. Fighting for number two, have this need. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say this, and I hope you don't take it the wrong way. Don't White people are culturally addicted to exploitation and control. No, that's absolutely true. They cannot handle not being in control. That's absolutely that is true. It's an addiction. It's an addiction to power and privilege and control. Yep. And it's called, inter- there's a term for it called internalized dominance.
1: Internalized. <clears throat> so, The idea of sort of an anti authoritarian system that we want to see implemented in the world is the idea that these sorts of internalized dominance and like creations of like many hierarchies that are then hidden, which create, you know what I mean, the sort of situations where it's like, no, we're all equal except for there's this hidden hierarchy, therefore I can treat you badly. Those are all authoritarian no, but tendencies. We're, we're not
3: all equal, and no. we were never all equal. We haven't been equal ever. Exactly, exactly. So being able
1: to say like, "Oh no," so if we're equal, then we don't have to deal with this situation, you know. So, like, the idea is that those are all authoritarian tendencies, and in order to have a true, like, an equal, an actual sort of equal, just society, we have to get rid of authoritarian tendencies both in society and within ourselves. So then when you so you know what I mean? So like I'm you know, those same things those like internalized dominances are like this like authoritarianism that needs to be taken away from our process and any of our systems and, and that's that's sort of the things I like about the Quaker thing too is like um though like one of the reasons that I am a Quaker and I enjoy being a Quaker is the idea of that inward state and outward action are component parts of a single whole. So, like, if you're not recognizing these internal dominances, you know, especially as, like, as a white person, like, recognizing these internal dominances and these, like, internal authoritarian and racist tendencies, like, you have to first look at them in order to be able to tear them up, t- take them apart. You know what I mean? So it's, like... It's yeah, I understand,
3: and that's,
1: white, pe- that's white
3: people's work. That, <laughs> exactly, yeah. That's not my work. Yeah, My exactly. work is you know, finding my power and asserting, you know, my debt.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a that's a really great point. So the internal outward thing is and, that people are asking and so yes, and and
3: when there's conflict in the mixed race situation if there are con- there's conflict like a racial conflict and those people who are doing the quote unquote mediating Are neutral and not and giving equal weight to each story or each um, protagonist. That um, you know they're not really um, weighing what's right or what's just. Right. -hmm. So, for example, you know, like you said, you know, somebody has an addiction to. To dominance, and they're not aware of it. I mean, white people are raised to believe that they are dominant. Mm-hmm. You know, the the, the the default. It's sort of and People of color yeah. are raised to believe the same thing. Mm.
1: Well, you know, in my school growing up in my ele- in my elementary school, white kids pretty much had their own playground. It, it was sort of in the systemic sense where there was like the um, ELP program, which was like the smart kids had their own kind of mm-hmm. their own thing mm-hmm. within this sort of the neighborhood school and like the quote-unquote smart kids which was one of the groups i was mm-hmm. in had people from lots of different neighborhoods because there were only a few different schools that ho- ho- hosted the elp program and somehow mm-hmm. like almost all of the kids in the elp program were white and from outside the neighborhood and um, except for like a couple chinese kids a couple indian kids um one tongan girl yes i yeah I and then mm-hmm. and then the elp program we had our own playground which was much nicer the rest of the people had uh, just like a f- the rest of the people like everybody else in the entire school got one big soccer field and like mm-hmm. we had like the we got the we had the basketball court and like all of these things and sort of like I just remember looking around and being like how come and oh the neighborhood I should say the neighborhood was almost all hispanic so
3: right, right. Mm-hmm. And
1: it's these things where it's like they don't say the white kids get the, and, oh, the playground. It's not like implicitly said like so it's segregated, but it ooh. obviously is. Right? Right. It, it
0: right. Built into the structure. So,
1: you know, so without it and then also not having those signifiers saying like, look, it is implicitly segregated, you can attack that. It's just as a oh. white child growing up in that environment, right. just for some reason we get to have the better stuff you know, and we're in the smart class, so therefore you just draw your own conclusions, right? Right,
3: exactly. But it's that's the structural piece of it. Mm-hmm. You know, white people control. So, so the way white supremacy maintains itself is by controlling the narrative, the processes,
0: and the resources. Yeah. You know, white people control. So, yeah. so the way white
3: supremacy maintains is by
0: the marriage, the the yeah. Think about
3: it. Because in every racial situation, and every situation is racial, believe you me. <coughs> yeah. Um Yeah. White people maintain their dominance by controlling the narratives, the processes, and the resources.
1: Okay, controlling, I'm going to write this down. Controlling the narratives, the processes, the processes and the resources. And the resources.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is that all, all that privatization stuff. I'm going to write this down. Controlling the yeah. the, 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 you know, European invented privatization, nobody else had that.
2: Yeah, um, property is theft. I mean, and it's it's true. I mean, Naomi uh, Klein talks about this in, in the shock doctrine the idea that, um, you know, following major catastrophes, uh, corporations use the sort of shock and paralysis of government to then justify going in and selling things off and saying, oh, it's so bad. Well, if you just do this thing real quick, it'll be, you know, we'll, we'll fix your whatever in the short term. And then it sells off these public goods. Um, but more broadly like is is a way um is both like a practice of continuing colonialism where um yeah, okay. in countries like haiti then demanding corporations coming in demanding that haiti sell off natural rights resources sell off um, yeah, various exactly things. yeah
1: mm-hmm. well, I mean yeah. colonial <laughs> colonial Europeans just coming in and making real real bad deals with the Native Americans about concerning property rights because they made them up oh
3: believe me, I know all about it <laughs>
2: mhm-, right so it's, I,
3: yes, but uh, the, the more I study research history, my own history, and, um, you know, how it's tied to the history of this country and my ancestors, it, it is, it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. White people have a whole lot to pay for.
0: Yeah.
3: A whole lot. I mean, I don't know if there is such a thing as. So, so I've established this thing called grassroots reparations. And I am inviting Quakers to engage in grassroots reparations, Um, and the definition is to give according to your means without waiting for an act of Congress, Mm
0: -hmm. Mm
3: -hmm. a testimony for generosity, okay? Because Quakers are stingy as...
1: <laughs> well, simplicity, right?
3: Uh-huh. <laughs> you know I'm right. Yes. <laughs> I mean, my goodness, y'all, and it's not like they don't have it.
1: <laughs> that's the that's the other thing, you know. Like I've noticed um, was the, with the with the. Um, I mean. Hi. The divide between sort of the, on the left, between the radical spheres and the liberal spheres is the issue of money. You know, like, there's, there's just, there, you know, like, just like people working in social justice don't have the resources to be doing the kinds of work that are supposedly forwarding the sorts of things that the entire left, including the liberal left, want to have happen. You know, so it's like if, if if it's if you're you know if you're gonna write a resource, I'm uh, gonna write a minute condemning racism. It's like you know, go give like the the money is worth more, especially you know, so the sort of grassroots reparation. It's like if you have the money, like write the minute and then give money to your local like NAACP or you know whatever group is working on the
2: ground. And for for our listeners, mm-hmm. a, a minute is uh, is basically like a, a resolution or, or a commitment on behalf of, of a uh, on behalf of a meeting.
1: Um, That's a great idea. The grassroots reparations. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, yeah.
3: So you know you can do that individually. You can do that as a monthly meeting. You can do it as a committee. You can do it as a yearly meeting. I'm just pushing that agenda. That's my cultural and political agenda, (laughs) part of my (laughs)
0: ministry,
3: (laughs) to encourage a testimony of generosity and grassroots reparations among friends.
1: Well, and if you're going to look to Christ, you know, for this, um, I consider myself a follower of Christ, and you're supposed to give till it hurts. You know, you're supposed to, like, give everything you got. And, like, we are, there are studies, you know, he wants everything. But if you're not going to go that far, <laughs> then, you know, there are studies showing that once you're at sustenance level, you know, if you're, like, have a living situation wage where you've got what you need, then more than that doesn't actually improve your quality of life as far as, like, how you, how you um, experience your life. So if, you know, you said in Oregon that is $70,000 a year. I think, Uh and so then, if Uh you're making above that, then there's no reason, even just for your own quality of life, especially as a Quaker, if you have the simplicity testimony, to not give away everything else. Mm -hmm. Really, you know?
3: Yeah, and and Quakers really, you know, know, when they start talking about simplicity and giving away, and you know, that's fine. But really, you know, they have some really quirky ways of making decisions. Like, for example. the sanctuary
0: movement.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good cause. Um, I'm not opposed to it, but there are meetings in AFSC and FTC and, and Friends Committee for National Legislation and, you know, who knows who else. It's busy trying to figure out how they can have a Quaker uh, presence or impact in the sanctuary movement. Mm-hmm. They're trying to make a name for themselves with that and trying to motivate Quakers to support that, uh, that I- idea. It's a worthy idea, Well here's the thing. They are living on stolen native land, <laughs> <laughs> and they do not acknowledge the people whose lands they are sitting on, mm-hmm. most of whom do not have a pops of piston mm-hmm. or a place to call their own. So that needs to be addressed. So when we start talking about sanctuary, we also need to talk about grassroots reparations and a testimony for generosity.
1: That's very interesting. I hadn't I hadn't heard that from sanctuary. That argument about sanctuary before. One thing that I saw on a personal level um, was a very nice person, and who. A liberal with good means who works in um, uh, social services, saying uh-huh. that they were thinking about going into private practice because they wanted to do something more fulfilling, like with refugees. And just hearing that for me it was like like the local community is really, really hurting. Um, and it's, it's not as glamorous. You know, you, you, don't mm-hmm, get the al- exactly. you don't get the star, in, you know, you get to say, right. like, you're working with refugees, but it's like, like, the, it, but then it's the question of, like, but, you know, but the people who need it the most need it the most, so should we, you know, be working? Well, with,
0: we
3: shouldn't, we shouldn't be doing, you know, oppression Olympics either, but, yeah. you know, quakers have enough to do it all mm-hmm. if they decide they're going to be generous. Yeah.
2: And you know, and, and not every meeting is the same, but certainly, um, and I think this is perhaps even more true um, in on, among East Coast and, and older meetings um, that there's yes, there's this absolutely love, there, there used to be a saying that Quakers came to America to do well, and they did. Um, that like there's a lot of rich older friends, um, yes, and they're absolutely. sort of like old money, and um, certainly, there are also destitute and poor friends, also, um, but um,
3: not too many.
2: Well, they, not they, they, too they, many. They do exist, though. <laughs> yeah, but
1: I mean, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's different sure. culturally on
2: the West Coast. Okay, the...
1: I'm sure I'm one.
3: Okay, I'm a poor, <laughs> yeah, I, I itinerant Quaker anti-racism minister.
1: <laughs> I don't. I don't have a whole lot of cash on hand. Um, we might get, we're going to so... start selling T-shirts though. <laughs>
3: Uh, <laughs> no, but I, I understand but, but what I'm saying is. <laughs> oh, oh,
1: I didn't mean. I mean that I, I was wondering if it, there's a difference on the East Coast or West Coast. Although I did hear that I think our meeting has a couple millionaires who or someone is yeah, that not see, true? Is that not this true? Is what I'm talking about? Maybe that's not true, but I know uh, there's definitely. I mean, Quakers were bankers, like and successful bankers. Exactly. So there's exactly. definitely. Yeah, exactly.
3: And, and if you go to the East Coast, Quakers were slave ship owners.
1: Really, I didn't know that.
3: Oh yeah, so Abington Friends Meeting of Abington oh, yeah. qu- Quarterly Meeting fame, yeah.
0: yeah.
3: where yeah. Avis was disowned recently. Yeah. That meeting, Abington, was built by slave ship owners. Quakers were in the they were in the slave trade in Philadelphia.
1: That's how Philadelphia yeah. friends got their wealth. Wow, I did not know that. Were those beautiful? Yes. I've been in those like meeting houses in Philadelphia. I went to Philadelphia last summer, and those meeting houses built are beautiful. They were built by money. slaves. Wow, slave money. Yes. 30... Well, they're yes. not as impressive as I thought.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and the endowments that Quaker schools have are huge from Quaker money. I mean, from, from slave money. Well, they're yeah. not as impressive as I thought. <laughs> Absolutely. And there's been, you know,
2: it's it's interesting Um, there was a uh, there's been a contest for some time um, of some older meetings where there were donations um, to these meeting houses where friends were, were, had donated and then um, meetings were uh, there was a moral contest for a while about um, whether or not friends should invest, um, should continue to hold on to uh, money that came from uh, came from these traditions, um, and... Um,
3: no. They're... Well
2: would I, I could always put it
1: in my grassroots reparations book? Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, <laughs> it's one of those things where, like, well, it's hard, it's, you know, when I, I've talked to people that have money, you know, it's very, it's like, well, it's, you know, and there's very, a lot of defensive, defensiveness about it, and as mm-hmm. somebody that, you know, doesn't have money you know, it's like one of those things, like, well, it's easy to say because you don't have money to give away. It's like, you're right, I don't. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't, you know, so it's like, um, it's just an interesting, how do you, how do you know, get and, people to give up privilege? Here's the thing about... I mean, because uh, I have some privilege, but I don't know what to do. Like, well, not, not here's
3: monetarily. what I've, I've learned about Quakers that have a lot of money and Quaker meeting and Philadelphia yearly meeting in particular they use money to manipulate people and bring about what they want to bring about. It's a control thing. Oh yeah. So money, for money example, is power. you know, when I was going through what I was going through in sandwich local meeting and when Avis was going through what she was going through right now with uh, Philadelphia yearly meeting, no friends of color, have supported either one of us. Really? None. I didn't even get a phone call from Vanessa July asking None me if of I was okay.
0: Have one
3: of us. Why do you think that she was? Knows who None. All of the friends of color that are Vanessa um, July. this is an observation now, and you don't have to believe me, but just do some research. <laughs> okay? All of the Quakers who are part of yearly meetings that are members that are people who um you know you hear about, such as the Mess July who is the coordinator of FGC's Ministry on Racism and the co author of that book I recommended. Um people who get elevated to positions where um, they're considered preferred or, you know, lady friends, it's always, there's always some tie with Quaker influence and money. Mm-hmm. So, for example, when it, when Avis was going through her situation, there was a black clerk at Philadelphia Yearly Meeting. Mm-hmm. Who treated Avis like she resented having to be expected to handle the Avis Wanda Upper Dublin situation?
0: Who treated Avis like
3: she? And she came to Upper Dublin, and you know, would say to Avis, "Well, what do you want? You know, we came there, we spent a whole year there. They do you know." And she was. The white, her handlers in Philadelphia yearly meeting wanted her to resolve the situation, and it was not resolvable, and they couldn't convince Avis that she was wrong, and the meeting was just viciously in denial um, and doing extremely mean, nasty things to Avis just to get her to be disgusted and leave. And nobody would call them on it. Mm. Nobody. They still won't call them on it. The meeting that they had where they disowned Avis, the clerk of Philadelphia Yearly Meeting was there. The clerk of Abington Quarter was there. And they had some woman who isn't from Upper Dublin monthly meeting that came in, was invited to come in and clerk the meeting so that members of the meeting could participate rather than have to worry about clerking. Um, And the first law she laid down, the clerk, was that nobody, no outsiders, no visitors would be able to speak during the meeting where they're going to disown it. Wow. And the clerk of Philadelphia yearly meeting and the clerk of Abington Quarter allowed that to happen. They were sitting in the room. The of- they didn't contest it. They didn't question it. They let it.
0: it
2: let, let it go. You know, and it's, it's situations. <laughs> I, I I think situations like that where, um, you know, you see injustice in front of you. Um, uh, it's, you know, and it's, it's <laughs> not not confronting that. You know, that's 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 one of the moments. You know, in in your life, where you know you, you've got a choice, and you just you have you've got to make the choice for justice, have to stand up for just things. Um, and I can't, you know, I can't speak for friends in other meetings and, and people in other places, but um, I I do think it is important to stand up, you know. And it's well,
3: but here's what, but that's not happening. Yeah. Avis is standing up, I'm standing up, and we're being dismissed as disruptive and got emotional problems, and, you know, why do we have to even deal with these people?
1: Mm-hmm. Where is this at? Where is this at right now? Is <laughs> in the... Well, okay, so, so,
3: to give you, you know, where it's at, Avis has been disowned, she tried to go to the quarter and, and, and ask them to address the situation, and they chose not to. Um, then um, they decided that it would be best if Avis uh, became a member of Green Street Meeting, which is in Philadelphia City, and she's a suburban girl. She's out there at Abington, Quarter, Upper Dublin. Um, you know, she's in the suburbs outside of Philadelphia, Well, she, she has to go into the inner city to go to a quaker meeting.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and they're trying to tell her what's best for her and they talk to her like she's a five-year-old. Mm. It, it's, it's Yeah. I mean, she forwards emails to me and sometimes, you know, photographs of, of, of things and, I mean, and, and, and the saddest thing to watch is friends of color who buy into that and, and, and help it
0: along.
1: I remember reading about in Hollywood where, um, like, director, um, female directors of color are trying to get more representation in, in Hollywood, and they're being actively worked against by some of the women of color who are higher up um, in the hierarchies in Hollywood yes, like fighting against yes, exactly. the ability of exactly. getting more women of color into the studios it's exactly uh, exactly, by
3: exactly. and that's what you see among friends of color too yeah
0: like fighting
2: against yes, exactly. the ability um, of getting more women of color into the studios we uh, exactly we are getting close to the top of a a second hour and I wanted to ask another question um, about um, following up with with what happened in um, the East Sandwich meeting um, in the sorry, what happened in the East Sandwich meeting um, uh, following um, uh, following all of the the incidents that happened—that there was a—you um, write about that there was there was a schism um, leading to the founding of two new meetings, uh, one barn stable and the other one—and forgive me, I don't know how to pronounce this—is it Cuffy?
3: Cuffy, uh huh.
2: Um, and so I wondered if you could if you could talk about those a little bit um, and how, the the formation of those and and what that what that sort of looks like today. Um, for our, our listeners who may have read that story, what's, you know do you know what's uh, sort of come of those meetings?
3: Well, I know what's going on with Barnstable's meeting. Um, and they are still meeting. That's where my mother goes. Um, oh. uh, I don't know what's going on with Falmouth, um, but I uh, or East or Yarmouth Court or East Sandwich, Last thing I heard was that, well, you know, they changed the lock on the meeting house to prevent me from coming and worshiping. Right? I can't. What? <laughs> and what and they, what they is wrong with these people? It, they closed
1: it down. <laughs> what is wrong they with closed these people? It down. Huh? I said, what is wrong with these people? That is just like, like, really? Is that necessary? Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> Apparently. They, they apparently thought it was. They're just like afraid they're going to walk in one day, and you're sitting there in silence, quietly. Like that's <laughs> that, like, how, how, no, it's like, that, that would be traumatic. traumatic. It's about control. Yeah, they didn't just, want
3: uh, me there, and I wouldn't leave. They couldn't handle not being in control. No, that That's exactly what it was. I mean, the day they called the police, you know, we were having a conversation on the front porch of our fellowship hall at East Sandwich during a potluck exactly I mean, and one of the women turned to me and said it's time for you to go home now Sharon So way they talked to ages and I said I don't think so
0: <laughs> and you have every right to be there like... <laughs> that's great okay that's great.
3: <laughs> I mean literally that's what happened and we were on the front porch of the fellowship hall and I went to open up the door put my hand on the doorknob and the chick who told me it was time to go home put her hand
1: on my wrist oh no Which no is no just... nope nope next that's what happened Oh man, that is what happened I can't believe that How'd... no no and there were
3: two other women there Two the Quaker women there, That's what
1: happened. they tried to block the door with their body. What? I'm so confused. Yes. This, is, this is so <laughs> uh, over the top. This is just
3: very extra.
1: <laughs> I can't. Right. All because Sharon would
3: not do as she was told.
1: Well, when you're being told to do stupid, racist stuff, like, you know, I'm glad that you didn't... <laughs> I'm just
3: telling you, you know, like, I'm just telling you, yeah. this is what's called internalized dominance. Mm-hmm. You're being told to do
2: stupid okay? Stuff, like, no. Right. <laughs> I, I, and, you know, and the feeling... And it, it, could...
3: it, it becomes vicious when, you know, we all do as we're told. Okay. And I, I, my mother will tell you I was devo- I was born
1: defiant. <laughs> That's great. that's great. That's great. That's great. I asked my mom once. Hey, mom, do you remember that time I respected authority? And she's like, "Nope."
2: Uh, you, and I think it's what's really remarkable with that story is that I mean the, the belief there must have like been in their minds, and some of they you know believed that they could control your body, you know, and could control you.
1: Yeah, um, touching like grabbing your wrist like that—that that is such a violation. And that's like such a like I have the right to your. To your physical to your body into your space like and
2: that's yeah yeah,
1: you know? yeah but but that but that's not how it was framed. Like, like,
3: okay the right controlling the narrative physical, all right to i got, got the space. door open anyway mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> So these three silly women were no match
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> 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 they were trying to intimidate me and dominate me and i was like Oh, please. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And I just opened the door walk inside. <laughs> and dominant, and
1: like, oh, I <laughs> was furious though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely furious. And I just open the door walk inside. It's just so, so critiqu- like to like <coughs> track this back to where this started. <laughs> like you're you're being I it's You know what I mean? Like, how, how these things spiral out of control When these, like, dominant structures And authoritarian, like, ways of understanding Interpersonal relations between people Just spiral out of control You know, like, this all started with and all A cross time, being burned at an you know, and, and every a t- you know, time they would try to get control And it
3: didn't work They would up the ante Right out of control. And they would try something different And that wouldn't work and they would try another tactic, and that didn't work. And it was really, it was frustrating for them. I mean, they were feeling And they would try something different,
0: and that wouldn't work. So just I mean, like about some
3: angry
1: white people? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it just like escalates and escalates. And... I just was crazy, crazy, crazy.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, they just kept trying. I mean, they had one meeting where they were discussing whether or not they were going to get a no-trespass order out or out, order out on Sharon Smith.
1: Uh, that is so dramatic, these people. Like, calm it down. Take it um, down a notch. Yeah. And I was at the meeting. I mean, I was sitting in the room. They were, were, they were just like My mother talk- was there. <laughs> like, just like in front of you, like talking about you like you're not there. Or, like, um, even just saying this I mean, there anyway?
3: A, it was a, like, a called really meeting sandwich Monday. Monday mm. to discuss. Like in front of sandwich monkeys. So this
0: guy,
3: what to life. do about Sharon Smith, and the item on the agenda was whether or not they should get a no trespass order.
1: This is a the witch hunt.
3: Well, I'm just telling you what happened. Yeah, okay, yeah. don't get all twisted out of shape about it. Just recognize that it happened. Okay.
0: Okay, and look (laughs) at,
3: look at, this is that, this is that white fragility thing, okay?
0: Mm
3: -hmm. Look at it for what it is and and analyze it. What is it really?
0: Mm
3: -hmm. Okay, because only by understanding it and how it functions are we going to dismantle it. Okay. Okay, so just don't get... You know, okay. <laughs> Do you think was I was I just
1: um, was I just displaying white fragility with my reaction to the story?
3: Uh, not quite. I mean, but you are responding emotionally. It would be white fragility if you were accusing me of attacking me for telling you this story.
1: Oh, okay. Interesting.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to check in. And wanting me to be quiet about it, not talk about it, because mm-hmm. it makes you uncomfortable. That would be white fragility. Ah. Okay, so, slight difference. Uh, Yeah, so, yeah, and um, at that meeting, too, you know, they, the clerks asked that visitors not
0: say anything.
3: Because, you know, once this thing got out of hand, started, um, and they told me I couldn't come back to worship for several months, and then, you know, they would accept me back. Um, uh, contingent on standards of behavior. Oh, no. Oh, hell (laughs) no.
0: They did not
3: send me a registered letter with this (laughs) Seriously, after they called, I didn't finish telling you about the day they called the police. Well, right after the day they called the police to escort me off their property, these Chick, okay, I walked inside, <laughs> furious and said, What is blankety blank 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 wrong with y'all? <laughs> Somebody came up to me and said, Shh, We're trying to have a
1: potluck.
3: Oh, That's like a terrible potluck. <laughs> yeah. Sharon, be quiet. You're loud. We're trying to have a potluck. Wow. We're trying to have a potluck. Yes. So I got a plate of food and I sat down. And then the clerk of the meeting, one of the people who was trying to block the door, came up to me and said, let's go outside and talk about this, because I was not going to be quiet for long. (laughs) And I said, I'm not going anywhere with you.
1: Well, this is an interesting oh I'm sorry I didn't mean to cut you off. this is an interesting story because one of the things that we talk about um, as anarchist is as space based social justice is taking uh, taking up space is like you know yeah. reclaiming the spaces that right. should be our spaces yeah. like in a physical way right. so like Mm-hmm. I, this story is like really, really great and really interesting. Here, you like talking about how you took that physical space that is your meeting house, you know, and like is your community, and how you know that that, and you know, that's just. I just, I just saw. I just was listening to your story and thinking about that.
3: Well, yeah. I mean, I never once ever thought that it was any more their meeting house or than mine. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, well, it is your meeting And one
3: of the arguments they got into with the meeting, so all back to the same day, uh, Rachel, my friend Rachel, came up to me and she said, you know, you are really agitated and angry and I understand that. Why don't we just go for a walk outside so you can talk to me and blow some steam off and, you know, just, you know, it's a beautiful day, let's just go for a walk. And I said, okay. So Rachel and I, go back out onto the front porch through the front door and the same chick who put her hand on me
0: <laughs>
3: said don't go far; the police are on their way hmm. and I said oh who called him you you did you call him she said yeah I said well what'd you call them for she said um you assaulted me
1: um she actually said that. Wait, and you were you were actually leaving, and she told you to stay so that the cops could come make you leave? Is that? <laughs> right. Well, well, I'm just telling you what she said. So, I mean, so that is just an interesting Words thing. because like, Don't go far. The police are on their way. Because that makes it pretty clear that this is about dominance and control and has nothing to do with, like, exactly. trying to get you out of the space exactly. or something. That
3: is very clear. Mm. Very clear. And she said I assaulted her. that makes it pretty clear
1: that this is about by, dominance Her grabbing your
2: wrist. I don't understand. Um, And a a brief pause here uh, as we come to the top of the hour that for our listeners out there, this is KEPW LPFM 97.3 Homegrown Radio. Uh, You're listening to Friendly Anarchism, and we're talking with guest speaker Sharon Smith, um, who has been telling her story um, and has been talking about racism and uh, Quakers and friends and... uh, thank you so much for being with us, and please, please continue.
1: Although we are going to need to wrap it up in yeah, well, I can do that probably um, pretty soon. I'll tell
3: you. I mean, um, so you asked me where things are now. Um, well, you asked me several questions, and we yeah, were just sort of uh, not following any specific <laughs> format. <I laughs> <think. laughs>
1: it's so interesting. I just I have like, all the questions. This That's so, so, much so good.
3: Yeah. <laughs> it's all good because I mean every story leads to another story and right. you can just find yourself and not going for one story either. right <laughs> um yeah so so um Rachel and I got to the top of a driveway on Quaker Hill in East Sandwich when the first police car drove up and um it stopped right in front of me um, and uh, the officer got out of his car, and, like he, you know, was on urgent business and said, I need to talk to you. And I said, oh, uh, well, I think you need to talk to those people up there.
1: <laughs> They're the ones who called you. They obviously want to talk to you.
3: <laughs> you know, I said, they called you. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> you.
3: <laughs> like, and I don't he know. said, don't you smart mouth me. I was to ready to go off on it and Rachel said,
2: "Sure." <laughs> 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 this got now. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Whatever. <ACAP. laughs> she
3: reminded me <laughs> who I was and who he was mm. and how badly it could be.
0: <laughs> so
3: I said, <laughs> Well. <laughs> Yeah. Sir, <laughs> I'm not the one you need to speak to. Those women standing in the driveway there, you need to talk to them. So Rachel convinced him to go over there. Mm-hmm. And and then that's when some other people came out of the fellowship hall to find out why there were three police cars in the driveway They're all lined up behind each other. You got <laughs> three police cars? they Three? I don't
1: know if they even wow. have more than three police cars and he said <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe they were bored. I don't know. What like, on three police cars? Why? They seem to travel in packs, don't they? <laughs> I haven't seen. I've seen that in Eugene lately, where the cop cars are just like they'll like travel like five cars at a time to like pull one person over. I'm like, wow.
0: <laughs> that's
1: pretty wow. Anyway, well, you that's know, who knows.
3: Who, who knows what they told these officers when they called them?
0: Yeah.
3: I still don't know. Because nobody would tell me.
0: Mm.
3: Uh, there was no police um, report filed. I uh, still
1: um, don't know. Because nothing
3: so happened. Well, there was, but it said, uh, <laughs> so it said disorderly conduct. Mm-hmm.
1: That's such an interesting terminology, disorderly, because it's like there's order, and you're, like, dissing it. Right. (laughs) And, like, it
2: doesn't mean anything. It doesn't
1: mean anything. Yeah, it's just, like, you're not doing things the way that we want you to do things. So we have this one specific (laughs) way of saying that on paper. But who who knows what they
3: initially said? Yeah.
1: Okay? Um, But
3: those people who came out of the meeting house were elders of the meeting, right? and a couple of the men came were dealing with three crazy women here and some of the men came out and, mm. and one of them was an elder cultural historian that had been, was on the peace and social Commit- social justice committee
0: right
3: um and he was arguing with the clerk who was claiming in front of this officer that. She- she had a right to protect the meeting and that they had to do something against all this disruption and people were afraid and didn't feel
0: safe.
3: I And the elder historian was saying to her, excuse me, Missy, but you do not have the authority to make a unilateral decision without having a committee meeting. You just can't do this. And she was arguing that she had a right as clerks to
1: protect the meeting, hmm. protect protect the meeting. What?
2: Yeah, they made what? it an issue of white people's safety. Yeah, when when I was reading your story too, I, it it just really popped out at me the idea that um, this uh, became, this story in particular um, painted sort of painted you with the sort of like dangerous black woman narrative. You know, though, exactly,
3: like, exactly Dangerous, yes Dangerous, uncontrollable Dangerous, out of control um, We're afraid We don't feel safe um, We don't know what she will do She's unpredictable mm-hmm.
1: Seems like there's okay. some uh, not the just,
3: Emotionally like... disturbed Emotionally disturbed And, um, you know, we're not qualified to handle it
1: it's sort of it's sort of this like there's this white fragility on like an emotional field, and it seems like there may also be some physical white fragility if grabbing someone else's wrist like puts you or makes you puts you like in physical pain and harms way. Like it's that's just like such a silly argument. But it's. Yeah,
3: but I'm telling you what the narrative is, and I told you white supremacy maintains itself yeah. by controlling the narrative. Yep. The processes
1: and the resources. Yeah. Yeah. So, right.
3: Yeah. I mean, I learned that through, through my experience.
1: What were the resources do you think in control in this situation? Because the processes, you know, kicking you out of the process and definitely like trying to change the narrative around you by vilifying you. But were there, do you think there are. Um, resources? No, well, only the only difference
0: between
3: me and Sandwich and uh, Avis and Upper Dublin is that. You know, I had, I didn't want to be depending on them for
1: anything. So they couldn't take resources, so they had to double down on process. They couldn't
3: control and my, re- no, they couldn't. Um, so they tried every
1: other trick they could think of. Right, you have to double down on the narrative <laughs> and the process if you, you know, can't if also control
3: resources. You know, um, so and so another dimension to the story is that you know, I was living in Nashville, which is in, in, you know, the native community, Wampanoag community there. My sister's married to a Wampanoag. I went to college with a bunch of people that are Wampanoag. I lived in the community, you know, i would rated, you know, Wampanoags. <laughs> I mean, and, you know, our lives were intertwined in some ways. And there's a myth, uh, well, no, it's been substantiated. It's not a myth first came to the Americas and they were persecuted and run out of Boston and the Flemish Colony they found refuge among the Wampanoag people on Cape Cod and that there was you know a, this historic bond a relationship a friendship between Quakers and Wampanoag hmm. um, and that uh, history is true but you know the relationship of Wampanoag and Quakers um, has devolved into Quakers, you know, own um, valuable property on Cape Cod, and Wampanoags are struggling to hold on to what little they have left.
0: Mm. Sure.
3: Um, and Quakers did not want to endorse or send a letter to Congress or whoever they're supposed to send it to um, to support the want nasty Wampanoags um, federal recognition claim and the arguments they were using in the Quaker community was um, well they're going to want our property if they get federal recognition Uh, mm. I'm just telling you and that was before you know I got there
0: yeah (laughs) yeah
3: Yeah. so you know it's Um, And they give away turkeys to the Wampanoag community for Thanksgiving and Christmas at the Tribal Council Office, and that's about the extent of the relationship um, today. Uh, But that's a side story. Part of it is, though, that, you know, I have relatives. My mother's a Quaker, my sister is not a Quaker, and she's not interested in being a Quaker, Um, but, you know, she's... Interact with the Wampanoag community, and you know, there was gossip that went from the Wampanoag community to the Quaker community. There's always two or three friends that are, you know, interested in maintaining the friendship with Quakers, I mean, with Wampanoag, and you know, interact with that community more than the rest of the Quaker community does. And the rumor was that, you know, Sharon um, was not interested in. Uh, combating racism, that she was just acting out against her mother, and it's, it's too bad that she can't appreciate the white right part of herself. Wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, and that's what yeah, that's what the Quakers were spreading among the Wampanoag.
1: Wow. Wow. Yeah. So they're just trying every different type of narrative. And I'm telling you.
2: <laughs> and, and like psychological warfare, like you were talking about earlier, like that's just like. That's just like classic, um, you know, spreading lies in the community to make it as as though you'd be less believable.
1: Yeah, delegitimizing. your. thank you. Oh, yeah. And the people that weren't there
3: that day that they called the police, those three idiot women got on the telephone and called everybody they could think of and said, Sharon assaulted somebody. We just really have to do something about her. Mm -hmm. Help. I mean, they did that. Wow. (laughs) Okay. People came up to me that didn't know me from Adam and said, are you Sharon Smith? Yes. Sharon, so well, you know, you're really trying to ruin our faith community. Then, okay, do I know you? <laughs>
1: <laughs> 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 I'm not sure I remember ruining your faith community. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who you are. Okay. <laughs> People
3: from Mount Tolerby's friends meeting in Western Massachusetts, that I ran into at the yearly meeting came up to me and said, you know, Sharon, I really can't support you okay. if you're going to continue to behave this way.
1: That's so paternalistic. <sighs> no, I told you, they talk to us like we're children. We're no count. I read an article talking about how... Um, it in some ways is easier to fight racism in the South than in the North because it's more easily identifiable, and you know, or then then in the North it's like it's people. It's like oh well, but we're in the North, you know. We are we're not the racist ones, and it's like more systemic and hidden. So it's. Um, the it north. no, I don't article. think
3: so. I don't think it's a more South issue. Okay. Because it's the same all over. <laughs> okay.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> same different that.
2: it, might, it <laughs> might look different but yeah
1: yeah okay
3: yeah yeah no, there's no difference
1: okay no, I don't
0: think so, right. and okay. even
3: after the north gave up slavery they were still benefiting from slavery and slave made good
0: mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> okay yeah good. I mean it's all connected hmm.
1: and that old wealth is still benefiting from that
2: I mean and yeah, yeah. and arguably you know economically the um the The focus around which um, the the labor has always been a question right with um, uh, even after slavery the um, uh, sharecroppers and then with you know as Michelle Alexander it, the new Jim Crow the sort of like prison labor um, it's I mean remains an ongoing question um, in u s society but um Sharon, I, I had another question that I wanted to ask you about. That um, it sounded when East Sandwich um, ended your um, your involvement with the meeting. Um, there was in the article. You also mentioned that there was two other friends um, who had been members. Who yes. did they mm-hmm. leave, or were they, or were they forced out of the meeting?
3: It's complicated. Um. <laughs> Because one of those people was my mother. Mm. (laughs) And she had been clerk of of that monthly meeting. She had done every job in that monthly meeting. Wow. Um, Been treasurer and everything. Okay.
2: (laughs) Positions of respect, yeah.
3: Yes, and she had trained several clerks herself um, and taught me about clerking and Quaker Process and, you know, philosophy, if you will. So I was well steeped in my Quakerism when these folks tried to teach me that it was something else.
1: Mm. (laughs) (laughs) I can't put that past on you.
3: (laughs) No, which really made them angrier. Because they would try to use faith and practice and Quaker process to do something that I call process violence, mm. as you know, mm-hmm. okay, as a term, the definition is using Quaker process and tradition in order to cause harm or hurt
1: that's you know, something that when, like, working in sort of anarchic worker cooperatives and sort of like neighborhood associations and sort of things trying to use this um, direct democracy and kind of horizontal process, that's another, it's a big problem is sort of like, it's the same problem where people will abuse the situation, you know, certain certain types of people will abuse a situation to claim Um, equality or to claim that the process is going too slow or, like, all of these things in order to create these, like, dominant systems and sort of, like, take over the process, you know?
3: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And control the process, control the narrative, control the
0: resources.
3: So, but here's something I really feel like I, I need to talk about. Um, and and um, I want to say, answer your question quickly. Uh, Barnstable Friends meeting is still operating, and my mother and Rachel were just along with me in the same minute, um, which they all approved. <laughs> uh, I was not there when it happened, but they did close the meeting house down and put it under the care of the monthly meeting to prevent me from coming there with my supporters, Um, and um, for several months, people who were part of East sandwich meeting were told that they um, should worship elsewhere, and that's when a group of people started to meet in my mother's living room um, for worship. Most of them were folks from the Racial Justice Committee. Um, and they ended up getting a building, um, and now that became Barnstable
0: Meeting.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and, you know, they didn't care, um, whether they were members of Sandwich or not. They said, you know, whatever. <laughs> and what about their business? Because these were not new friends. I mean, these are lady friends that had been friends for generations. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, they...
3: Um, my mother, are you kidding me? <laughs> seven, seven, seven generations of Quakers. Okay? Wow. Seven generations. So, I mean, these are the people they were disowning because they supported Sharon Smith. Mm-hmm. And no other reason. No other reason. Are you kidding me? And said, you know, you're wrong. You are wrong. Why don't you act right? So they and to, these were the only two people that were willing to not go along with the, the, the insanity. I mean, it was a a, a good study in
0: hysteria.
1: Hmm. So they had to, because I mean, how established like your mom is, and how and you are, they had to. Just seems like they just had to try extra, extra hard to go over the top to delegitimize you, because like if you, because you know what I mean, like you're so legitimate that it takes the, just an extreme measures to sort of pull that delegitimization tactics on people like you and your mom.
3: Well, they didn't really attack her. I mean, most of the time when the stuff happened, she wasn't there. She was like out of town visiting my brother or something. Mm. You know? So <laughs> uh-huh. the day they called the police, she was not there. Okay.
1: Do you think they would have called okay. the police if she was there?
3: I don't know. I, I can't even speculate. Yeah. yeah. But they did plenty of other crazy stuff, like when they told me I couldn't go back to meeting for September or whatever they said it was, and then I would have to, you know, adhere to standards of behavior. People from the yearly meeting came and worshipped with me on my mother's beautiful deck in Nashville, you know, a couple of weeks in a row. And then I said, I can't do this. I am called to go back. I don't care how they react, but since they accuse me of assaulting somebody, you all need to come with me because it'll be my word against theirs, and I'm not playing that.
0: Yeah,
1: well, yeah. another thing is like, it's you a- need
3: to come with me. So people came with me from the yearly meeting to go to worship and eat sandwich, and the first day they saw me, they were furious because they had told me when I could come back. Under certain conditions, and I came, and they told me I couldn't.
1: Yeah, it's reclaiming. They space, were though. shocked. They, they were in shock.
3: One yeah. woman the same silly woman that told me it was time to go home, and to grab my arm, got in her car and left because so she was so insulted that I dared show up after this. they told me I couldn't come back until such and such a time.
2: Wow.
1: But it's one of those things where it's like that. That sort of is that sinister denying space to people, like keeping people out of the physical space is a way of, like, showing Controlling, controlling Oh, there you go, yeah, there you resources. go, that's what it was Controlling resources, exactly, exactly So, like, yes. yeah, so yes. you're reclaiming that resource in that space and then, right, right. oh, interesting I, re- I love that, I love that framework
3: And then the next
1: time I came back, the next week yes. they had people
3: standing blocking the meeting house door so that I couldn't cut it, come in Wow and i had friends with me from the from the yearly meeting one friend lisa growski who was uh, actually at the time a member of the working party on racism but she was also the young friend coordinator for the England yearly Meeting. she was there and she came up to me and told me that one of the people on permanent board that was from falmouth threatened to have her job taken away, and she shouldn't be here, and she should mind her own business.
2: Wow. <laughs> okay. Kind of
3: economic sense, yeah, yeah. Lisa laughed it off. She says, well, I don't need the money anyway, so I don't know what he thinks he's who he he's
2: <laughs> But um,
3: then she walked up to me and told me that. Wow.
2: Um,
3: um, and Quakers are not the only threatening people to get them to come into line with the narrative that Quakers choose to promote and to believe.
1: Yeah, I think I think probably being white trumps any sort of other um, identity in a lot of these situations. <coughs> you know, <what> I mean? <laughs> just you know what I mean.
3: Well, you know, I wasn't. I, my, my mother's a white girl, and she didn't know how to teach me to be wary of white folks and their.
1: White nonsense. That was that was a good moment of control. <laughs> Shenanigans. <laughs> Shenanigans.
3: Uh, and their white nonsense, yeah. like most, you know, people of color have, have mothers of color who teach them, you know, just don't mess with those white people because, you know, it's a problem every time they have problems. <laughs> uh, hmm. But my mother didn't know to teach me that. She taught me, you know, spirit-led activism. Okay, and following a leading and yada yada speaking truth to power
0: Absolutely. there's I mean, a
3: difference speaking truth to power as a white friend than it is being, speaking truth to power and being a
1: friend of color it's just so messed up and sad that that's something that black parents have to teach their children
3: yeah but the, what I'm telling you is that I didn't know that so, yeah. so I learned it the hard way yeah okay yeah yeah so you know lots of people of color just take it for granted and they're like yeah well that's just like some like nonsense and keep, keep it moving but that is the reason why we have so few friends of color because most people in their right mind are gonna the minute they run up against that stuff they're gonna be like okay I'm out of here
0: yeah.
3: <laughs> you know that's true yeah so, what is it about the handful of us that well, we say, That's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, I'm out of here. I don't know. We have time to get into that topic now.
2: I think we another actually, time.
1: We, another time. I wish I would. In a, we have a number of interviews lined up for a while, but I would love to do an. Um, Possibly, well, I don't know. I can't. I yeah. It would be not right for me to promise that right now because we don't have a schedule. But like, this has been a wonderful conversation, and I've just been. I've really appreciated it.
2: And thank you so much for being being willing to call in and talk with us. Um, you know, I think this is this has been a really um, it's been in a lot of ways an, an open conversation. I really appreciate you being willing to talk about to talk about your story and your experiences um, with us and and sharing that. And um, I. I think that uh, Quakers have serious questions, um, and in particular, white Quakers have very serious questions we need to ask of ourselves and of our meetings. Um, and I'm very, I'm, I'm so grateful that you've come and told your story here. Um, so thank you, thank you, for sharing.
1: Yeah, thank
3: you so much. You are more than welcome. I just want to leave you with one thought.
2: Please. Go ahead, please.
3: Yeah. (laughs) Hello? Yes. One thought. Mm -hmm. The biggest problem we have with confronting racism among Quakers is is the serious lack of engagement of Quakers in the issue. Mm. We're not willing to challenge one another and, you know, Mm -hmm. be more proactive on the issue among friends. We're willing to talk about racism anywhere in the world, in the country but we're not willing to confront it among ourselves. And that there is why we're not making any progress. So, be more
1: proactive
0: on the issue
3: among friends. That's, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been real, folks. I enjoyed this.
1: I'm so glad. We, I had a great... This was wonderful. You, you are just a wonderful person to talk with. I got so much... I love that framework of the um, internalized dominance. That's going to be really helpful to me in my work.
2: Um,
3: yes, so, the important um, understanding. I enjoy
2: um, I'm so so the thank you, friend. And um, you are we are going to be uh, to phasing to out, out here, but... For our listeners out there, this is KEPW fm ninety-seven point three. Uh, you've been listening to, um, uh, you've been listening to Friendly Anarchism uh, on Homegrown Radio. Thank you so much for joining us, um, and we hope you have a wonderful rest of your Sunday afternoon.
1: All right, thank you so much. We'll see you next week.